Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. We're in the middle of a very heated debate in this country about the way one person's personal behavior, personal morals intersect with the fitness of that person to serve in a major office. Well, guess what? This is not our first rodeo. In fact, during the Clinton-Lewinsky scandals, we were debating essentially the same set of questions, including the way women are treated when they come forward to tell us about something. And fortuitously, Slow Burn, one of the really great podcast franchises out there, is tackling the Clinton-Lewinsky scandal. We're going to talk about that on this show. Also, Serial, the most beloved and popular podcast franchise ever, is back with a show about the criminal justice system, which involves, you know, judges. So all of that, very relevant to everything going on right now. Stay tuned for a conversation. Let me explain this <laughs> to the extent that I actually understand it. Let me explain this. Last Friday, we were recording a show about these two podcasts, one of which is about the Clinton Lewinsky scandal and the other one of which is, well, it's an extension of the serial podcast franchise, the most famous franchise in podcast history. So it's a conversation. It's part of the nose. We had a great panel. We did it down in New Haven. But as we were doing it, the whole Jeff Flake elevator thing that led to the unusual committee vote thing that led to the moment that we're in right now. That all was unfolding, so it never got on the air. But it's a really interesting conversation about these two podcasts, which do bear directly upon everything that I just mentioned. So we're going to play it for you right now. So we're going to be talking mainly today about two podcasts. Neither one of them completely new. One of them uh, is uh, Slow Burn, which is uh, in its second season. Uh, It is telling the story of the Clinton-Lewinsky scandal. Uh, And the other one is Serial. Most of you know what Serial is, but Serial is now in season three. Season three is very different from the seasons that preceded it. Uh, And here to do the conversation with me uh, are Lucy Gelman, uh, editor of the Arts Paper and host of WNHH Radio's Kitchen Sink. Nicholas Kwa, who probably, I, I sort of feel comfortable saying definitely, knows more about the podcast business than anybody in America. Uh, And he writes about podcasts for Vulture. Uh, He's the editor and publisher of Hot Pod, a newsletter about podcasts. I I am comfortable saying that if you are really interested in podcasting as a form, you should be subscribing to his newsletter. Uh, Mercy Quay is with us. Uh, She hosts WNHH Radio's Work It Out. There's something I'm supposed to do with my hand when I do. Oh, I was supposed to do that. Okay. Next time. Uh, Next time. It's always next time. I'm growing. I'm growing. Uh, And she is a principal consultant for The Narrative Project. So, um, we're going to start first with Slow Burn. Slow Burn, by the way, is uh, a product of the Slate uh, slash Panoply podcasting group. 
although Nick could probably give us a huge update on everything that's going on with them corporately. It's really complicated. I don't think we'll bother. Um, but uh, Leon Nafak is the guy who hosts it. He started out uh, with a first season that was about Watergate. He has shifted his attention, uh, as I said, to the Clinton Lewinsky scandal. Uh, and so we're going to hear a little bit of season two, uh, episode three. Uh, I believe what we are hearing is the part of the moment at which the Paula Jones case becomes part of the overall Bill Clinton story. Not knowing what else to do, Jones called a lawyer in Arkansas and asked him for help. Pretty soon, the lawyer was on the phone with Cliff Jackson. The call gave rise to a fateful collaboration. After hearing Jones's version of the Excelsior Hotel story, Jackson told her and her lawyer about a press conference he was putting together to raise money for two of the state troopers. It was scheduled to take place at CPAC, the annual gathering for conservatives in Washington, D.C. Jackson suggested that Jones could piggyback on the event and use it to set the record straight about her experience with Bill Clinton. And her version was slightly different than in The American Spectator. And if that were true, then it was concerning. And what made you, what made you believe her? I didn't automatically believe her. I didn't automatically disbelieve her. I tried to maintain an open mind about it. I'm aware that people uh, not only slant the truth, but they have a perception of the truth that may vary from the actual truth. So I thought she deserved to be heard. And so, in February of 1994, Paula Jones flew to Washington to go public with her allegations against the president. All right, that's just one of uh, many subplots that wind their way through this season of Slow Burn. One of the things that dawned on me as the panel kind of walked in here, I mean, I know all of them, but I wasn't really thinking about it that much, is that they're all, what's the word? Young. Uh, So this is very much a part, this story is very much a part of my adult reality as we go along here. Maybe I'll tell you a little bit about how I experienced it. But I'm also interested to know uh, how... Uh, this is this is affecting them. And Mercy, I think I'm going to start with you because I think I'm thinking you're probably the youngest person here. Although I don't know. How no, so I'm, I misled you all in yeah. email. Yeah. I said that I was uh, five or six when I meant to say I got my my years mixed up when this happened, which is also a, kind of a testament to right how this is not in my right. act, my current reality. Um, I was a uh, ten or eleven, uh, nine or ten. I don't know, ninety eight. <laughs> Nine so, or ten. So, so I guess what I want to know from all of you is, as you're listening to this now, is it the story that you think you know, or is it a, a different story? This is instructive to me. <laughs> this feels like the syllabus uh, into the. Uh, this feels like the syllabus uh, of the 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 '90s understanding Clinton, and I feel like for the first time um, since 2016, I have finally understood why people were so emphatically against. Mm-hmm. Hillary Clinton because I could not understand I could not grasp that when people would say uh, you know I I just don't trust her I don't trust her and American Horror Story even had an entire season um, called cult about not trusting Hillary Clinton I could not put my finger on why exactly and now I understand this a conspiracy to the extent that they detail in slow burn for me i think if i was if i was conscious if i was old enough to be conscious at that moment i think i I, i'd like to think that i would be a little bit more educated but i i I might fall into it um 
Uh, Nick, I want to also ask you, I want to ask you sort of the same question, but also um, ask you a little bit how this podcast, you listen to more podcasts probably than most, if not all human beings. How does this podcast sound to you? I, I had some really specific thoughts about how it sounds. So uh, to answer the first question first, um, actually, so I'm not American. I grew up in Malaysia until I was 18, and I was really, really young when this happened. And my cultural memory of it is just in the broadest possible terms. Mm -hmm. I knew there was a woman named Monica Lewinsky. I knew there was a dress. I knew that something happened to Bill Clinton. I didn't know he was impeached until I got here to this country about 10 years ago. And I didn't even know what impeachment meant, like mm -hmm. literally and, and technically in the situation. Um, and so... When I I would not say that I was particularly surprised to learn a lot of the things that I was uh, that I was kind of thrilled to learn in this document, mm -hmm. largely because like you know history kind of blends a lot of things, and one of the really remarkable things about slow burn is that um, you know Nafac's endeavor is trying to sort of situate you within that time and how it felt, mm -hmm. um, and I've had only the experiences I've had since in my twenty nine years of being alive, and so I'm super curious as to how people forget this moment in twenty years and mm -hmm. how it's going to be shaded down. What is, you know, enormously horrifying or sort of really sort of creepy is how many of the principal players are still super active mm -hmm. in, in this contemporary moment. But in terms of how it sounds, um, it simultaneously feels like a throwback and it feels very new to me. Um, All right, for sure. Yeah, there, there are ways in which it feels like a Talking Heads documentary that's sort of like visual and, and you, can, you can sort of like see in your mind's eye a sort of West Wing style visual production. But NAFAC's sort of like structural voice makes this feel a lot more sort of close and connected. I, I find that really fascinating. I, I did a sort of weird uh, qua-like thing, and I, I tried toggling back and forth a little bit between one of the episodes of Serial and one of the episodes uh, of Slow Burn. And I thought Slow Burn sounded a lot better, that his use of music, you yeah. know, that like the music that we just heard here, for example, and the way that he uses it. There's a one moment, I think, in episode seven where he uses this almost Philip Glass-like hum kind of building up behind things. Uh, I thought it was kind of produced in a much more interesting way. So, uh, Lucy, I'll just riff on this however you want. On slow burn. On slow burn. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think much like Mercy, it's been really clarifying for me because I don't remember. I remember that my parents were Clinton supporters. I remember that there was a blue dress, but I didn't know the details. And I think my parents, not uh, incorrectly, thought I, I was probably too young to grasp everything that was going on. We didn't really talk about it in school. And, and so for this, first of all, I had no idea how many scandals plagued the Clinton yeah. administration. Mm -hmm. I mean, I just had absolutely no idea. I think I thought I was a much more politically literate kid than I was. Bush was really that, that was the first, Bush Jr. Um, that was the first presidency of, of which I think I was really politically more aware. Um, so, so for me, it's been a huge learning experience. I enjoy listening to it from the perspective of I, I like well-produced podcasts and well-produced radio. And I agree that, that there are some choices, especially with things like music and voice. And when um, Mayfac uh, decides to pop in certain interviews that are really smart, I also, though, struggle a little bit um, because I, I think in trying to make this a very sort of journalistic straight take on the on the Lewinsky, like, hearing the affair, everything that happened around it, um, we lose a little bit of the information about how horribly manipulated Monica Lewinsky was herself and how young she was. And one thing, Mercy, that you've said is she seems to become younger in, in every episode. Yeah. And, um, 
you know, and, and I think I have thought a lot about that, especially right now when we're at this moment where we're thinking about what does it mean to be a woman who is... Um, who who may be sexually assaulted or may not may or may not consent to certain uh, acts. I'm I'm curious to know. I, I noticed that you did say that in the email about manipulated. Do you mean manipulated by everybody, by both sides, or by one side? I or? think manipulated by both sides. Um, specifically manipulated by a person in power. I mean, no no matter how much. Um, folks around Lewinsky or Lewinsky herself at the time said this is a fully consensual relationship between two adults. You can't say that, in my humble opinion, when you're talking about someone who wields incredible power. It, mm-hmm. it is the highest office in the U.S. Um, and 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 so that is difficult. But also, I feel like she was horribly manipulated by Linda Tripp. And I think the most, in, in episode six, Linda Tripp at one point reiterates the line over and over again that she's been saying throughout the, the series. You know, I just kept thinking about what I would have done for my own daughter. Mm-hmm. And I just about threw my phone across mm-hmm. the kitchen and said, you know, th- this isn't your own daughter. This wasn't your decision to make. And I got really angry at her. And I, I consider Linda Tripp committing a, like, a huge form of violence against another woman. Yeah. Yeah. So we should say that one of the things that uh, NAFOC has been able to do, the guy who, who puts this thing out, is get to a lot of people. Uh, and he mm-hmm. got to Linda Tripp. Um, there is uh, a whole sequence. I'm not spoiling anything, but uh, there's a sequence where he first reaches her and gets her on the phone and he decides – ironically, that he's going to record her without telling her. Uh, but he ultimately gets face-to-face, a long face-to-face interview with Linda Tripp. There have not been many face-to-face interviews with L- Linda Tripp. I mean, I was hearing a person who I covered a lot at the time, but I had never heard her in the kind of detail and voice um, that I'd heard her, that I heard her on, on Slow Burn. Well, I, so since Lucy said this, so episode seven, I think, you know, if you if you were going to skip all of this and you just didn't want to do it or whatever, although I, I would encourage you to start at the beginning and hear the whole story. It's pretty good. You can listen to episode seven and hear, a, I think, a pretty remarkable discussion um, about how women in general, particularly women yeah. self-identified fem- feminists, um, processed <laughs> all this. And, I mean, the short answer is not in one particular way. There mm-hmm. was a long, protracted debate about this. So, yeah. So, Mercy, what did you make of, of that debate? I mean, so uh, f- there's a clip in episode seven where we hear, uh, I don't even remember who it was, but she's being interviewed and um, she she's asked, uh, well, what do, what do you say to the people who say that the feminist party has turned against Monica Lewinsky? And her response was, anyone who thinks that doesn't quite understand what it is we do or what mm. we stand for, right? At the, I think at the heart of being a feminist is believing in a woman's choice and to pigeonhole all women into having the same opinion on a topic, on any said topic, is at its heart a misunderstanding of what feminism stands for, um, but I, but I also think that, for me, in description, Monica Lewinsky uh, started to reverse age, mm-hmm. right? I, you know, we don't hear her voice until maybe episode late in episode two or three, mm-hmm. and for me, right, 
early in episode one, she's described as, you know, the woman, the woman, the woman. And I think woman for us all, all already puts us in a particular mm-hmm. mindset. Um, later on, she's described as the intern, the young woman, right? Then I don't hear her voice until episode two or three. And then, I, then I'm snapped into understanding how young she sounds. And Trip calls her a girl in a woman's body. Exactly. And she uses yep. that term verbatim. Just, just for the record, she was, uh, she had just turned 22. She was just a few months past her 22nd birthday, I believe, when the affair began. One of the things that I'd forgotten, actually, was how lo- this thing was a year and four months long. I mean, it, there's a one-year, basically, hiatus in the middle of it. But um, And, Nick, one thing, uh, not to make your, all your comments all about sort of podcasting no, technique no. and stuff like that, because I don't want you, I want you to just talk like everybody else. But <laughs> one thing I was thinking today was that episode seven, which is – kind of different from what came before in a way. There's not a lot of storytelling, not a lot of narrative in episode seven. There's a lot of different women's voices and you're hearing you know, how, th- how the reactions went in the press and various little round tables that were held to talk about all this. But I think he can get away with this because he's been such a good kind of noir style storyteller right. so far, right? Right, I think episode seven is, ex- is exactly what a show like Slowburn was built to do, mm-hmm. which was to really take you back to the moment and kind of really delve through what people were arguing over um, and sort of the various factions of intellectual thought and argumentation, political st- uh, strategy, I suppose, um, that was taking place during that scandal. Um, but the thing I think that really, I mean, there's a connection between episodes seven and six, where in six of which uh, I believe it's called God Moan, and it talks a bit about how the evangelical mm-hmm. right responded to it, and you can see shades of certain sense strands of hypocrisy that kind of echoes in today. Um, and so there's these sort of elements where episode six and seven kind of take you out of whatever narrative drive or plot that there is, or a, a timeline of what happened. And it, I think in these moments, it's exactly what where I find the most value when it comes to slow burn because I really want to understand where our norms were at the time Mm -hmm. and what we were fighting about. But the thing that actually, I mean, I find the most interesting thing about this project and how it kind of may or may not perpetuate certain sort of failures that we've already, that this country's had when the scandal was happening was the is the absence of Monica Lewinsky as a as an active voice Mm -hmm. in, in she, I believe she declined to be interviewed for Mm -hmm. the project. And so this, way in which her uh, identity and individualism and character has been sort of co-opted and, and is is a product of struggles and tensions of other people's interpretations is largely perpetuated in this in this podcast. And so, you know, Bill Clinton has the benefit of being an extremely public figure with millions and millions of narratives already produced for him. Mm-hmm. We're still stuck, I think, in the same place when it comes to Lewinsky, which is, which is unfortunate, but it's also just a function of the limits of certain kinds of reportorial journalism. I, I, I do want to talk a little bit more about this, and I think we can tie it uh, quite a bit, I think, to what's been happening now. Um, you know, I um, uh, Andrew Sullivan wrote a piece apropos of the Kavanaugh hearings in which he, at one point he said, I, I leaned heavily toward believing Anita Hill, Paula Jones, Juanita Broderick, and Christine uh, Blasey Ford. Uh, and that's an interesting string of people. And I, I think one of the things, one of the teasers – we haven't gotten all the way to the end of Slow Burn yet. It drops, and I guess this last one won't drop until October 10th, but it appears that he did get an interview with Juanita Broderick, the woman who claims to have been raped by Bill Clinton. But uh, there's a way in which, uh, you know, Lucy, I was sort of listening for how Monica was talked about, particularly in that episode seven, and, and thinking about how Christina Blasey Ford is talked about now, mm-hmm. too. And there are dissimilarities and similarities. Correct. I don't know. Where were your thoughts going? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly correct. I think, um, like Nick said, there's a lot that we can't know because Monica's voice is not in there. And 
quite literally yesterday we got over two hours of Dr. Christine Blasey Ford, um, you know, and, and got to see exactly where she was. Um, and I, I will also say uh, when thinking about the ways that they're talked about and, and what has remained and also what may be different, one thing that was really hard for me was I was actually watching live commentary as she was testifying and then as, as Kavanaugh was testifying. And I saw a lot of uh, what I would classify, um, although maybe this is not fair to other women, but as women speaking out not in their own interests um, and in a way that was very violent toward other women. Um, so women saying she's a liar, this is a witch hunt. Um, in, and I think in that way, there are some things that, you know, I, I talked to um, Jonathan McNichol, the producer, about this. So you've got Anita Hill in 1991, you've got this in 98, and then you've got this 20 years later. And in some ways, so much has not changed. Mm. I don't know yeah. if that if no. that made sense. No, that, 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 that did make sense. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I I do feel as though there are some. Obviously, we should make sh- make it clear there are some vast differences. Huge, starting with narrative. Huge. Um, uh, Christine Blasey Ford and Anita Hill are accusers, yes. uh, non-willing participants in the stories that they tell. Mm-hmm. Monica Lewinsky's story. I, I don't know whether this surprised you or not, uh, Mercy. I, I, you know, I just I don't know that I'd ever heard it framed this way because I haven't read Jeffrey Tubin's book, which I think is one of the things that does frame it this way. Like how much. Really, really, I, I guess maybe I'd forgotten how really in love she was mm, with Bill Clinton, yeah. how much she thought they were maybe going to have a life together. And and it's even suggested by NAFAC and, and I think by, by Tubin or somebody else that that maybe Clinton was really kind of smitten with her, too, at a certain point after he got past just using her, which he clearly was for sexual relief at the beginning, that maybe even he had a you know, something resembling a Right, crush. that it was mutual. I, I think what NAFAT does for me is um, is illustrate a story that, I, that like, for a, a novice, for someone who is just being introduced to the story, mm. is really um, uh, telling about how this wasn't some, I don't know, I think maybe in my mind's eye, as a nine-year-old, I thought that this was a, a single, a one-off sort of incident. This was a, an affair. It was, this was an affair over several months, and they were um, mutually invested in it to some degree. Although I think that he uh, regularly, I mean, we're told that he regularly tried to break it off. Well, and, and initially, uh, the, and I do remember <clears throat> this from the original Star Report, she kind of heartbreakingly said after a few sexual encounters, how come you never ask me anything about myself? Right, mm-hmm. right. And so, you know, Nick, earlier you said that... Um, or actually, it was you, Lucy. You said that she was manipulated, and I, for me, I I'm not sold on that idea. Mm-hmm. I think that she was manipulated in the telling of this story. I think that uh, I think that because she was so young, she was malleable, and I think that her narrative has been sort of manipulated, and we have we haven't been able to kind of hear from her directly on that. But I but I shudder. And I and I and I pause at the idea of calling this abuse mm-hmm. because I wonder at what age is a woman granted agency, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Be- because I mean, yes, she was a young woman, and uh, she was 22 when it started, or just turned 22. Uh, but at what age is a woman granted agency for her own decisions? But when you throw in the nuance of the other willing participant here is married, yes, and then the holder of the highest office in the land, that's a nuance that I don't know how to reconcile. Um, and right. There's not a lot we can compare it to. Right. right. I, there, I, I don't have, a, I don't have a, a fair comparison there, and I don't really know how what the rubric is for it, right? And so 
for me, I struggle to think that if we were to, if the roles were reversed and this was a man, would we say he wasn't a willing participant if he assured us that he was? Would someone said, man, if this was my son, I was just thinking about how I would treat him if this was my son. We just wouldn't do that, mm -hmm. you know? And so at what age is a woman granted agency or autonomy over her own sexual decisions? Yeah, I, and I don't think there's, I, I think unfortunately you can't, <laughs> You can't come up with a standard that necessarily applies to this case for the exact reason that you said, right? I mean, there's there's no analog right. here. I don't know, Nick. Where are your right. thoughts I, going here? I, I find like the hearing you sort of string that out, and the thing that occurs to me most prominently is sort of what is the most effective, appropriate system to judge those questions or to process those questions. Right. Because whatever happened between the both of them in a private sphere no longer matters once it becomes news in a public forum and sure. that itself becomes rendered irrelevant when it's brought into a legal proceeding or, or political proceeding. And I think in, in this in this situation, neither party nor neither Lewinsky nor Clinton has any sort of way to either receive feedback or to really ingest the, the, the sort of specificity of their moments because it's been blown up into these things that they can no longer control their narratives and no longer yep. theirs. They are no longer arbiters of their own story. And in a weird way, this kind of, this kind of reminds me a little bit, and this is going to kind of loop really weirdly, to this New York Times profile of Bradley Cooper that came out <laughs> earlier this week uh, by Taffy Brodesser-Agner, who's a really, really gifted writer and, and profiler, where Bradley Cooper's entire sort of stick or angle with that with that profile is like, I want to be in control of my own story mm -hmm. so that I can know my own personal truth about how I feel about myself. And like, I'm going to communicate to you the way that I can. Of course, very, very different situation, celebrity, uh, presidential politics, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, whenever I hear a scandal like this or a, or a situation like this pop up, it, it can, it can, I always come back to this question of where, where are we supposed to litigate this and what is mm -hmm. the fairest and most effective way to do it? Because it feels like the, in the media, it's not going to be particularly effective. In a political you know, congressional hearing, it's not going to be particularly effective. We're going to be broken and destroyed either way. I, I do think, you know, to, uh, Lucy, one answer that I would have to Mercy's question, which I, I think you're asking too, and it's a really great question, is one of the ways that this is different from a 45 or 49-year-old man having an affair with a 22-year-old woman just in the rest of life is how much investment there is on the side of the man and all of his supporters in either – like this machine kicks in to either make Lewinsky look like a lunatic right. for mm -hmm. months or to say she's a liar or, uh, as we see in episode seven, you know, women kind of reacting to her in a whole bunch of different ways, some of which are not entirely charitable. And Bill Maher – big surprise, Bill Maher is a pig. But um, Bill Maher does this whole speech about how it's Monica Lewinsky who owes America mm -hmm. an apology for what she did. But the truth is, everybody's got different reasons. Patricia Ireland, who's head of now, you know, is basically <laughs> fundamentally making the decision that this Bill Clinton is so much bigger than his sexual peccadillo. So, so that this, you know, he has to be kind of given a pass on, on all this stuff. And Monica Lewinsky is, I mean, she's so much collateral damage in a way that you just wouldn't be in any other kind of mm -hmm. situation. Well, I feel like you just laid out a couple different, uh, although not totally, you know, it's on the on the big Venn diagram, there are a couple overlapping circles there. Mm -hmm. um, and, and one of them is, yes, this question of, I mean, it's, it's also, I was talking to my partner about this. It's funny because in this country, especially when there are Republicans who can skewer a Democrat about this, we really seem to care all of a sudden about who's sleeping with whom and why and if it's outside of their marriage. And um, and, and frankly, if you look at other government, I mean, like, 
in France, everyone's stooping everyone else. Like it, and and there are people who are who have public political profiles who are having extramarital affairs, and people know about it, and it's not a big deal. So that like, just regardless, there's there's that issue. Um, but then there's also the issue of people saying, "Oh, he's so big, he sh- he should be given a pass on this issue." And the long and storied hysterical woman narrative, mm-hmm. which we can't overlook in this situation. So, Mercy, I do agree with you in a lot of ways, but I also see a woman who sort of thought, um, think not wrongly, that she was totally in control of yep. the circumstances around her, when really she wasn't. For 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 things that she like for for things that were so much bigger and a political universe that had machinations of which she was not even entirely aware. Mm-hmm. We're going to have to take a break, so we'll have some time to talk about cereal. I just, I do just want to, can I just end with one reminiscence, which is that one of the things that NAFAC says that I hadn't remembered was that the Star Commission, uh, the Star Group, got this, uh, got his report up online as quickly as possible, and AOL kind of overloaded and stuff like that. But I think when it first came out, like for the first few hours, it was just in paper form. Mm. And I was live on the air with Bill Curry, who had actually worked in the Clinton White House as uh, assistant counsel, uh, and or whatever his title was. But anyway, um, he and I were sitting in the radio studio, and it was being faxed to us uh, page that? by page by exactly, exactly, <laughs> page by page by page. And and so and this is on commercial radio. And during the commercial commercials, we would run to the fax machine and we would get the new thing, bunch of faxes, and we would read them. And our jaws were just hanging open. Mm. I mean, really. One of the things that I think might be difficult for all of you to comprehend is there just had never been anything like this, anything remotely like this. I mean, we'd been through Watergate where we discovered that the president was often evil or vulgar or, you know, profane or cynical. And it was very shocking to America. America was a very innocent place in a lot of ways in the 1970s. But there just had never, I mean, the kind of detail that we were reading about the president in the United States, there was just no way of processing it at that moment. Uh, That is one of the things that that kind of has changed. Um, All right, we're going to take a break. Uh, Panel's going to talk about the third season of Serial when we get back. We are back. We uh, This is The Nose. You might be hearing The Nose at a different time than you usually listen to it. I have no idea, really, what you're doing. And it's none of my business. It is my business to tell you who's here. Lucy Gelman, editor of The Arts Paper and host of WNHH Radio's Kitchen Sink. I should say that's S-Y-N-C. Uh, Nicholas Kwa, who really does know about as much, if not more, about the podcast industry and podcast in general uh, as, as or than anybody else in America. He writes about podcasts for Vulture. He is the editor and publisher of Hot Pod. 
a newsletter about podcasts, you should be getting that newsletter if you're interested in podcasts. Mercy Quay, uh, host WNHH Radio's Work It Out. I should say, first of all, that I was supposed to snap my fingers, and second of all, <laughs> that work is spelled W-E-R-K. As long as I'm spelling Lucy's title, I should spell this one too. Uh, and she's a principal consultant for the Narrative Project. All right, so we're switching gears here. We're still talking about podcasts. <laughs> Serial, which uh, probably remains... Serial still is like the biggest success story in podcasts, right? It remains so. I mean, yeah, I don't think anything challenges it. So Serial, season one of Serial, was like nothing else that podcasting has ever seen uh, before or since. But we're on to season three. Season one, if you recall, was uh, the story uh, of a murder trial in Maryland. Uh, season two was the story of Bo Bergdahl. Uh, season three of Serial, it's still Sarah Koenig. She has a, a little bit more help uh, these days and sort of a co-narrator at times. Uh, it's a different kind of series. Uh, it, it's about the criminal justice system, and it's looked at through one court building uh, in Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, we're going to hear uh, something from episode one, which is called A Bar Fight Walks Into the Justice Center. Uh, you're going to hear Sarah Koenig uh, talking to an attorney named Russ Bensing uh, about how he handles certain kinds of criminal cases. Russ knows the whole system is primed for him to take this misdemeanor offer. Facts of the case be damned. Everyone here pleads. 96% of convictions in this courthouse come from pleas. All day, that's what people are doing. Brokering, haggling, angling for plea deals. The tendency, even among defense attorneys, Russ says, is to go along with the flow. We're trying to get rid of cases. If somebody is offered a plea to a misdemeanor, you take it. Be done. Okay, that, that's a win in defense parlance. The feeling will be, well, she has a prior record anyway, so a plea to a misdemeanor is of no consequence here. I remember one judge told me, uh, this is, one judge told me, in this county, innocence is a misdemeanor. What does that mean? What that means is if they don't have the evidence against you, they'll let you plead out to a misdemeanor, okay? If they can't prove you guilty, they'll give you misdemeanor. Everyone around here, prosecutors, defense attorneys, judges, even defendants, has internalized this idea that a misdemeanor is of little consequence. A lawyer like Russ sometimes has to remind himself how mangled a principle that is. If the prosecution can't prove its case, they should drop it, not simply shrink it until it looks harmless enough to swallow. All right, so... Um Nicholas Qua, there's a way in which uh, Sarah Koenig and the whole uh, serial team, they're taking a little bit of a risk here with this series. And they're known for kind of a, a very intimate portrait of a very specific case. Uh, they've done that for two seasons. They're doing something different now. I don't know. How's it working so far after three episodes? Uh, I find it I, I find it excellent. I really, really enjoy listening to it, even though it gets incredibly difficult at times. It It's still really early to figure out how this will function in relation to or in, or in sort of in separation with the first two seasons, there are tremendous differences, of course. The first two seasons were largely powered by a central mystery. The, the first season's mystery of which is, of course, did he or did not he not commit murder? Um, and that and was sort of the narrative engine that I believe drove the phenomenon behind the original run of Serial. Um, and the second season was largely wrapped around a mystery about why um, uh, an army sergeant named Bo Bergdahl um, w abandoned his, uh, his base in Afghanistan and was subsequently kidnapped by Taliban. Here we basically have a really ambitious ethnographic look at one justice system in one city in America, and it becomes and it's supposed to sort of prism out into this larger uh, investigation or examination of how uh, the justice system works in America. Um, and you know it, there are there will be difficulties with representativeness of each individual case that's covered by each episode, uh, but the way that it's working for me right now, it's it's 
it's textured. It's really interesting. It's surprising, but it's also not surprising because you, if if anybody who sort of closely followed uh, crime reporting and justice reporting in America, kind of wouldn't be particularly surprised if a lot of what's been discovered so far. Right. I'm ha- I'm really yeah. happy that you just like crime reporting because when I was a, a courts reporter up in Torrington, uh, and I was just sort of hanging out at the Litchfield mm-hmm. County Courthouse, it this is what this feels like. It kind of just feels like Sarah Koenig hangs out at right. the uh, what county is this? Remind me. Is this Cleveland? Cuyahoga. 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 Right. Yep. So she 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 just hangs out there, and it feels like every story that she gets is incidental. It right. just happens by the way that you get a story when you're a reporter and you're in the courthouse. To me, I think that says something about the I don't know production value, and when you compare it to Slow Burn, where it's like um, uh, Kavik has a very clearly mm-hmm. outlined narrative that he wants to follow that he produces and um, a, a plot that he wants to uh, the the, fo- the listener to follow yeah. whereas Sarah Koenig is kind of like alright well we're going to kind of go wherever the courts take us now. Right as well because this is almost like local reporting. Right. Like it, yeah. it feels like what uh, the local paper should be producing on a daily basis and of course this is ongoing crisis about yep. the death of local journalism but it, it's so weird it's been repackaged for this national, international, semi-universal read on, on a criminal justice system. You know Lucy, uh, Nick said it was sometimes difficult to listen to. I think you guys were using the word triggering uh, going into this. Uh, explain what you what, what that would mean. I think for me, and, and I know Mercy has felt this way too, and, and Nick, you've, yeah, you've felt this way as well. Um, I, I mean, I, I think for me, sometimes it's hard to listen to because uh, I'm aware of all of these injustices. Um, also, I, I want to just let uh, listeners know that I am a white woman saying this um, just because I feel like I'm aware of that, but sometimes not subject to that. Um, but that said, uh, listening to this, it's like, oh, it's worse than I thought it was. Or like, how is this going to change? And I also feel like I didn't describe triggering that well. Yeah, for me. So uh, the first episode, uh, my my dryer broke and I had to listen to the first episode while doing all my laundry at, from the laundromat, oh, no. which is like this. It, I'm in this place because I think laundromats are... Uh, a cash grab against poor people and I'm in this place right where I'm looking around and I'm sort Mm -hmm. of looking at everyone and I I mean you know I kind of have to fault myself for this and sort of uh, carry some shame that I'm I'm sort of thinking about okay well what about that guy what 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 history what criminal history does he carry how is he impacted by this system that I'm listening right exactly Um, and for me that was kind of triggering because uh, for those listening I am a black woman and I'm aware of that and often subject to that. And for me, you know, being in that space, I, I think while I am aware and subject th- to being of being a black woman, it is seldom because of, I think, the status that I have acquired here in New Haven, that I have mm-hmm. any interaction with the court system outside of reporting on it, outside of commenting on it. Right. And so uh, this was triggering for me because I, I know the stats. I know that uh, one out of every three black men are is going to find themselves in front of a court or in prison at some point of their lives. Right. And those are those are triggering stats because the uh, main character of the um, first episode, she is there's the scene where she is in the back of a patrol car and she is belligerent and she is going at the uh, patrolmen, the officers, screaming at them. I don't know. I, for at, like hours. For hours. Right. For an hour. An hour. An hour, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, and, and when Sarah Kane 
goes back and has a conversation with her. She goes, how did, how did you, why did you do that? How did you know that you can do that? Mm -hmm. And she says very bluntly, well, not for nothing, but you know, I'm a white woman. So, you know, there's some things I can do. That for me was very triggering. And I think because there are things that I know people know, but when people admit that they know it, I'm like, I don't know how to operate in this world. I I think in that same description, I I think one of the other uh, characters, uh, or maybe Kenny is summarizing what's been said, is she, I think it's maybe her, she says, basically what he's saying is better to be white, worse worse to be black. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I I, I have to say that, uh, you know, it's, uh, I listened to this, first of all, right before I listened to it, I listened to the end. I finally caught up with the end of um, the second season of In the Dark, which is a podcast about a very specific criminal case involving a black defendant in a very small town in the Deep South. Um, and heading into the Kavanaugh series, I kept thinking about that case and thinking, you know, in terms of the allegations against Brett, Kav- against Brett Kavanaugh, boy, if there were allegations about a young black man holding his hand over the mouth of a white girl lying on a bed, and It'd like, be uh, how, yeah, how how would how would that have played out at any point? Um, and and I do think I know, I'd love to get you to talk a little bit about this. One of the uh, things I wound up thinking about in particular was episode two here of Serial, which is the profile of a judge and. One of the things, Nick, that we really get out in this profile is how powerful and and other than the appeal process of itself, mostly unreviewable the behavior of a judge is, particularly when he decides he's a law unto himself. Right. And and such is the stakes of the Supreme Court confirmation process right now. Mm-hmm. The, I think, you know, separate, I mean, including that, that story about the judge and just like what the third season serial been doing, has been doing so far, it like really captures this feeling that, um, so I've, for the benefit of listeners, I'm a male Asian immigrant that very, very recently went through a green card proce- process, is how arbitrary your entire fate seems to this entire system and how you know, you get the wrong judge, you get the wrong day, your file gets, you know, lost in the mail, it's over for you, your life will never be the same, you will never be whole again, or you might never, you know, might never have that opportunity. And the, the, the thing that's so, that I find so fascinating, not just about serial, but any sort of, you know, enterprise reporting or crime reporting in general, is that I feel like I'm supposed to be scandalized, like, that this piece of journalism was produced for me to feel like there, there was a system that was supposed to work, and here's how it's broken. But I kind of feel like the system's always been like this. And so I am kind of just convulsing listening to this and not really quite sure how to sort of integrate this into my life because I don't, I don't quite know the north that we're supposed to be facing with because mm. this is the reality. Mm. Yeah, I, I don't know what the, what the rest of you thought about that. I mean, this, the portrait of Gaul, who is the judge, Judge Gaul, I thought was really kind of fascinating. I mean, he, he is, he's a character, and he's the kind of character that I think Sarah Koenig works with pretty well. And there's an intimacy in, in her <coughs> trying to figure him out that is maybe a little bit more typical of the previous seasons. I, I don't know. How did either one of you, how did you react to uh, well, I, uh, negatively, obviously. <laughs> um, but I also, I, I, there's, there's a little envy of, not of Judge Gall, but of Sarah Koenig specifically because I would not be able to get the story, mm. right? I would not be able to have that same conversation with Judge Gall and have him be, or in, in episode three, the conversation that she has with the uh, police commissioner or yeah. the union president, I think he was. And um, I, I wouldn't be able to get the details of that story because I, I, I'm a black woman and to let, um, to, to enter a room, uh, and get someone who harbors these very problematic and racist ideas to let their guard down is impossible for me to do, right? Even if I 
actually, you know, in some sort of uh, self-deprecating way, also harbored those ideas, there would be no way for me to actually get them to let their guard down well, enough to be able to report the story. Sorry, Mercy. Um, I, I think not to keep it totally in the podcast universe, but I feel like maybe a couple months ago there was an episode, I think, of This American Life where whoever the narrator was was saying there are certain things, you know, if if you are a white person and you're in the media, there are certain things that figures in power who are also white will say to you that they would not otherwise say publicly. And if you get that on the record, that's great because then you can go forward with it and move the narrative just a little bit and move the needle just a little bit. Um, but but yeah, I mean, I, I think the profile episode, so episode two, the profile of this judge was a really interesting profile. It also just made me so angry, especially in the midst of watching the hearings, mm-hmm. because it, it, it for me, it, it is not new news that white men, mostly older white men, believe that they know, like, like believe that they are the arbiters of truth, believe that they know what is good for the rest of humanity. That's not news to me. But to hear it play out over and over and over again in the criminal justice system for what begin as relatively minor infractions and then build and build and build yeah. because the system is rigged against individuals, especially parents and single parents, was so upsetting to me. Well, Lucy, let me tell you what the truth is. <laughs> I'm just kidding, actually. We there's have also to, this pe- we have, well, yeah, you'll have the last word. Okay, so okay. there's also this piece about um, how the judge, uh, for me, some of the pieces that were most appalling weren't the you know clearly egregious things that he was saying. He was saying the the pieces that were most appalling was uh, him calling them you know what are you doing, brother? What like what's up, dude? Those are the things that were most egregious for me because in his mind he was able to to uh, convince himself that that was just me being relatable, yep. right? And and when you're when someone who harbors these problematic ideas is able to convince themselves that it's actually helpful on the other end, I think that that is most harmful um, when it comes to race relations we in America. We should also quickly flag that um, Sarah Koenig is co-hosting the season with yes. uh, Emmanuel Jochi, who is yeah. a, um, a young black man who was yeah. sort of posted in yep. Cleveland for the whole year. He is, um, he was, he is British, but he's also American. He's, he's it's a thing. It's a yeah, thing. yeah. It's and it's, it's a it's hearing a hearing him yeah. being factored in is super interesting. How sort of opens up these stories because yeah. he can access things in ways that an American black man can't. can't. Right. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And there are yeah there are moments where he's sitting in a room, uh, and particularly with this judge, where he realizes that the judge is aware that he, a black reporter, is sitting in the room and maybe having certain reactions to him too. All right, we have to stop there. This is really fascinating stuff. That's the third season of Serial. You've got an awful lot to listen to this weekend, but. We'll tell you about other things we might recommend after this. All right, it's time to make uh, some recommendations or endorsements. I stole this idea a long time ago from Slate Culture Gabfest. But um, so, uh, Lucy, uh, why don't you get us started here? What are you going to recommend? Yeah, I have two really quick ones. The first is Sing Unburied Sing by mm-hmm. Jessamine Ward. So, when you've listened to too many podcasts and you decide that you need to go to a, a wonderful work of fiction, pick up this book. It's beautiful. Her use of language, uh, which was also on display in Salvage the Bones, which I believe was her first novel, is back. Um, and it's it's really. It's very, very powerful. It's a hard read, but it's also a quick read. 
The second, if you... We should say that. I think it won the National Book Award. Or yes. the Pulitzer or something. Yeah. Um, if, if you, after this episode, have listened to all of Slow Burn and the existing season of Serial and decide, wow, I haven't listened to enough podcasts yet, listen to Scene on Radio, S-C-E-N-E on Radio. Um, it's John Bewen and the Center for Documentary Studies at Yale. Last year, they did a series on whiteness called Seeing White. Um, Chindrai Kumanika was the co-host, and this year he's back with, uh, John Bewen is back with uh, a series on uh, patriarchy and toxic masculinity. It's very apropos, but it's worth listening to, and there are about six or seven episodes at this point. Okay. I think it's been endorsed maybe even once before on our I think Kyone Wolf might have endorsed this, oh. but anyway. Uh, but that's good. It's good. Double dipping's fine. Mercy, you want to go next? Uh, yeah, keeping in theme with my space uh, recommendations endorsements. Um, I'm wearing a NASA shirt, and so I, I, you know, I have to bring this all home. There are there's a book and there's a podcast that I want everyone to listen to. Um, Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson has released another book. I don't know what he does. Like, how does he have time to do it? Um, he just released a book called Accessory to War, The Unspoken Alliance Between Astrophysics and the Military. It's a really great read so far. I am uh, listening to it on Audible. If you are expecting to hear Neil deGrasse Tyson's voice, you will be disappointed after the prologue. Uh, I apologize in advance. Um, but it's also a, it's a great read. It talks about how uh, science advances because of the advancements in the military, uh, and you can grapple with how you feel about that after uh, the show. And the podcast that I'd like to recommend is from the Planetary Society. Uh, the Planetary Society, based out in uh, Pasadena, California, is uh, Bill, Bill Nye, the science guy, uh, his sort of pet project. Um, he's currently sitting as the CEO of the organization to advance planetary research um, here in America. And they have a podcast called Planetary Radio. So if you are interested in planetary research or anything space, please feel free to check those two things out. All right. Nick you get the last word. I, I got three quick recommendations, one podcast, new, two non-podcast recommendations. The, the podcast recommendation is uh, a show called Adventures in New America. It's an audio fiction podcast by um, uh, produced by or sort of published by the creators of Welcome to Night Vale. Um, it's, it's really hard to describe. It's set in an alternate universe, uh, future America, where society has largely broke, broken down. There are sort of, you know, blood-sucking vampires. And also there's a lot of sort of um, really interesting social commentary about American politics, dystopia, race. It's, it's super interesting. It's a little, it's a little out there. Uh, but I recommend folks who love Night Vale or stuff like that, check it out. Um, the second thing I'll recommend is a book called uh, Boomtown by Sam Anderson, which uh, is um, largely a book about Oklahoma City, its formation, its sort of its soul, carried to the present. Um, I love it because it's, it has the, it carries the backbone of the story of um, the Oklahoma City Thunder, my favorite, my favorite basketball team. And finally, I'm going to endorse uh, sort of a YouTube meme video uh, called A Star is Boar, which is a... Uh, a comedic um, adaptation of the trailer for A Star Is Born, featuring Kermit the Frog and um, and I, f- I forget the Miss Piggy, Miss Piggy. Um, and it's cut Why together. Why you look at me for that? So, no, 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 no. I was just pointing <laughs> to the general to the general direction here, um, and it's cut together by a really fantastic uh, podcaster and comedian called Kevin Porter. All right. I, I'm just going to use the remaining, remaining time to do quick thank yous here. Jonathan McNichol is the main thank you. He's the person who produced this show. And actually, he and I are down here in New Haven, all alone and afraid in a world we never made. Uh, and uh, so the part of Bill Curry was played by Grover. Uh, I don't know when you're listening to this, but thanks for listening to it. <laughs> I don't know when it's going to be on the one o'clock slot. But if you listen, if you're listening, then thank you for listening. And we're going to be back next week with a whole raft of exciting new shows. Talking about that and talk about everything as a matter of fact. Oh yeah. 
talk about Torrington, Vernon, Danbury, Waterbury, Oliveberry, Woodbury, hitting on New Britain, Vernon, I already said that one, Avon, Farmington, yeah, 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 yeah.